This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we're talking about two of my favorite things, laundry and money. <laughs> we are, we are. And and last week we had on Mark Ting, who was yes. talking about money laundering in, in, a, in a different context, Cambodia. Sure. This week we have on Sir Somerville, professor at the Sauter School of Business, but also one of the authors of the government report on money laundering in real estate. So it's a very exciting show. Yeah, and we should say, Sir is is a, is a great guy. He actually came to the studio, uh, took took time out of his busy schedule. That's right. And uh, we really appreciated having him. Uh, among many things, he is a uh, Harvard graduate. No big whoop. Uh, no big whoop. <laughs> He's also the uh, Real Estate Foundation of BC professor in real estate finance. Um, he's at the uh, Strategy and Business Economics Division. He he wears a lot of hats at UBC. He does wear a lot of hats, and uh, he's a he's a very obviously a very bright guy. We don't have to say that, and don't take our word for it. Just listening to the interview, but uh, right. yeah, it was it was a fascinating conversation. So stay tuned for that for sure. And before we get to our conversation with Sir Matt, um, what's new with you? Well, what's new with us is we had a barbecue on Friday. Oh yeah, 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 barbecue. Yeah, and uh, we had the meat. What are they called? The beyond so so throwback to Mark Ting's episode yeah, uh, where we the, discussed at length the beyond meat beyond bur- meat burgers is, is it that, beyond meat burgers? beyond meat burgers yeah yeah so 
we have a we have a, a weathered history with vegetarianism in our family. Um, and uh, I haven't eat. I haven't. I was thinking about it on the way over here. I haven't eaten beef in twenty five years. Yeah, and I and I'm back on the beef. Um, yeah, yeah. It, some might call me a beef cake, um, <laughs> but I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm big on on beef. Uh, also, I'm sick of Eve's vegetarian burgers, no, which I are basically never, just. Well, here's the thing: beyond, like beyond Meat has now ruined vegetarian burgers in any any other vegetarian burger out there is right. dead to me now. I can't because we did. So here's the thing: you came over. We had a couple other people over. Uh, for a barbecue on Friday, and I've never had this experience before, where you eat something that you haven't eaten since childhood, and it almost brings tears to your eyes. That was my experience with Beyond tears Meat. Of, tears of happiness, yeah, or it was too real. Because sometimes vegetarians find stuff too real. This or too was close. the Beyond Meat burger was like our our old man uh, making hand patties when we were kids on the charcoal barbecue. I'm right. telling you, that's what it Part brought of the me reason back. We all went vegetarian. <laughs> It brought me back. <laughs> um, here, on a side note, though, just just in thinking about the Beyond Meat burgers, a um, lot of meat eaters there. Everybody thought it was a great burger. Everybody thought it was uh, actually, in some cases, better than a real burger. You know what? Uh, past uh, past guest host Pete Stoyakovic actually told me it was one of the best burgers he's ever had. Period. Does this have anything to do with the fact that we just bought stock in Beyond Meat Burger? <laughs> Thanks for the tip mark thing. Yeah. Anyways, we've got a great show today, guys. Uh, what else? Anything else before we get to this interview? I don't think so. This is all things money laundering and uh, the hot topic right now. And it's uh, extremely informative. So stay tuned. So without further ado, our interview with Sir Somerville. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Sewer Somerville, Associate Professor at the Sauter School of Business at UBC. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. So, sir, can, can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> I'm middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I've been a professor at UBC for 26 years. Um, I'm uh, an economist by, by training. Um, my work, uh, research work, is in housing markets primarily, a little bit on real estate, um, mostly on things that have to do with the supply of housing. Um, but being an economist at a business school means you teach real estate. Uh, so I've taught you know real estate and then sticking in any other sort of noun at the end. Uh, and I've taught those real estate courses at UBC. Um, and, you know, being here 26 years, you spend a lot of time just sort of looking at what's going on around you. Um, Vancouver shows up in my research in the sense that um, I use a lot of Vancouver data uh, in the work. But like most academics, my academic work is of little interest or relevance to any normal sane person. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, so Vancouver shows up in your research. Are you actually... Do you focus on the U.S. or no? It's more it's it's more an issue of data, right? So so you know the, the if you're an academic and you're publishing academic research, you're essentially saying, well, let me answer a question that somebody anywhere in the world in this field would be interested in. So no one really cares what the current level of sales happens to be in in 
um, in Vancouver. On the other hand, you know, a question, you know, how have, you know, taxes on capital inflows affected activity is of interest because there are a variety of places around the world. So, sure. so there's a, that's an example where you might use Vancouver data to answer a question that people are more generally interested in. Okay, interesting. So, so one of the reasons we asked you uh, you on today, and, and we appreciate your time, is you haven't you... found anybody else who's willing to come here. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the issues. <laughs> uh, you co-published a a, uh, a paper that was commissioned by the provincial government, as I understand, combating money laundering in BC real estate. So uh, to be uh, an anal academic and technical, yeah. um, I was the member of an expert panel okay. that was uh, commissioned by the Ministry of Finance uh, to come up with recommendations to address money laundering and abusive practices in real estate. Okay. So maybe just as a, as a starting question for you in, in this regard, what is money laundering? That's actually a, a more complicated, it's both an easy and more complicated question. Right. Um, so, you know, strictly speaking, money, money laundering is any aspect of the process uh, that creates the appearance of clean, legitimate um, income or capital out of funds uh, that emerge from the commission of a crime. So there's, the technical term has to be that there's a predicate crime. Um, you know, the first stage of that, if the crime involved cash would be like getting the cash in the system, right? So the classic, I've got a hockey bag full of, of dirty bills and I'm at the casino. Can I have chips please? Um, is only one part of it, right? There are a lot of crimes like fraud that, uh, there's never any cash. It's all bank transfers. Um, and so then money laundering is going to involve getting those monies into the financial system, uh, all kinds of activities known as layering to hide the initial uh, source of it, to create legitimacy, um, flowing it through legitimate businesses to create an income stream that itself is legitimate, and then uh, either using that or investing that money. So th there's a whole package of things. Uh, one of the things that was really striking was when we were hearing um, testimony from a variety of industry groups, people would say, well, you know, no one is buying real estate with cash, so there's no money laundering. And that's true. There's not that part of money laundering. Um, but if you took, you know, drug money, uh, deposited it in a bank in Colombia that was then transferred to a bank in St. Nevis, loaned to a numbered corporation in Switzerland who then made payments to a numbered corporation in Luxembourg uh, that then transferred the money to a, a, a number to a bank account in the Cayman Islands that then was the source of funds for purchase of real estate here. That's still money laundering. Sure, and and so. It's a complicated. It's a complicated question, I think. But what you just described there is a is a, a number of complicated transactions. When when you're thinking about money laundering, um, like how do you chart that? How are you How are you finding those? Can you follow the flow there to actually see where this the original crimes that type of thing? So um, if you are going to uh, prosecute money laundering, you have to be able to show the crime and the trail of the funds. Now that was not something that we had the resources, time, or even mandate to do. 
Right? That's that's something that there's an investigation where you have access, you can subpoena bank records and you you can have forensic accountants trace these things back. So people are certainly able to do that. Mm-hmm. That is certainly possible to do because anytime there's a bank transfer, there is a there's a digital trail, uh, and even with uh, with uh, cyber currencies now, um, there's still which, which make it really difficult. Sure. There's still ways to to find certain kinds of links. Um, so that's possible. That's not what we did in, in, in our work, um, but that's what would have to be part of a criminal prosecution. And that's part of the reason why prosecuting money laundering is so difficult. You not only have to sort of be able to identify this trail, you have to actually um, demonstrate that the monies originated from a crime. And so if you think about uh, it's one thing to even be able to do it if the crime occurred, say, in British Columbia. But if the crime occurred in Kazakhstan, then you need the cooperation of the Kazakhstani authorities in order to, to, to prove that. And, and international cooperation in this area can be challenging. Right. Is, uh, so I guess maybe, and this is maybe more of a, a methodology question, what was suspicious about, like how, so if you're not actually doing that kind of the forensic accounting or charting back to right. say Kazakhstan how, what what is making how, are how do you certain, come up with a number how, how do we come up with a number how do we come up with the fact that it's actually money laundering so um the, the way we approached it was essentially um and and to be honest that part of the analysis was not sort of my silo my silo was once we had a number for money laundering figuring out what it meant for the real estate market that was strictly my silo so i'm going to speak for uh, one of my co-authors work sure uh, now so this is this is this is secondhand um and you know one way to think about this is if you know all the crimes that have happened in the world and all the uh funds that came out of that crime then that's your that's your money laundering number because by definition, sure, right. So so that was the direction, which was looking at looking at criminal activity, looking at the monies uh, estimate, estimated monies generated from criminal criminal activities, and then trying to model how those might be moved around the world for a variety of factors. So it's kind of a top down approach rather than collecting all the data on individual things and tracing all all, all those things out. Um, and and there, there's a very nice uh, internal report that was done uh, uh, by some some analysts at FinTrack, which is the um, the federal uh, agency charged with um, warehousing uh, transact- suspicious transaction information that talks about sort of the different ways people have tried to measure money laundering and the challenges therein. Right, that you're 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 predicting something, you're trying to estimate something that people are trying to keep hidden. So therefore, by definition, you are estimating. You know, one of the other ways someone has tried to estimate it is sort of looking at the size of the gray economy relative to the legitimate economy in Italy. Um, another way people have done, tried to estimate this is to sort of look at the amount of cash out there, U.S. cash out there, relative to how much cash is actually would be used in you know legitimate businesses and, and take the gap. So there, there are a variety of ways. These are all estimates. Right. Um, now, you know, so someone may say there's this amount and I'm like, yep, there's that amount plus or minus a really big standard error. Right. Is FinTrack actually a useless or useful estimate? Would you say? So, so FinTrack is not, you know, FinTrack is an entity, an organization. Um, uh, so of course I can't remember what the acronym stands for, right? Financial transactions, um, you know, I think the challenge with FinTrack is they were very much set up to engage with, with banks. 
and large lending institutions with compliance officers and, and systems. Um, and, you know, and to take in information and then hold that and then when asked by law enforcement to provide it. So I don't think it's a question about whether or not how they are as an organization, because that's, you know, how are they at meeting what they were asked to do? I think it's more an issue that um, they haven't been asked to do the the things that they need to do, and they haven't been given the direction on that. And so I, you know, I, I think a, a, one of the best things that that I heard in, in all our testimony is is someone I think was from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver came in and said, "Look, you know." Um, FinTrack is a real challenge for for a realtor because you get this sort of twelve page form that was you know drawn up for a bank compliance officer that you're trying to like figure out and it seems like a whole lot of work for a whole lot of nothing, right? Which is not that doesn't lead to sort of compliance. And they made a the great point. Couldn't they just come up with some app that when we're sort of at a sale, we could have a few drop down menus and something and and sort of send that out. And 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 I what that got to was that, you know, FinTrack's mandate and how it sees itself is not and has not been, all right, we've got a whole diverse set of ways that we need to engage with sources information and how do we align ourselves to work best with them and for their circumstances. And so that's either a failure of the organization or a failure of the mandate, depending on sort of how you want to line it up. But, but I, I don't. I don't want to say they are a failure so much as they are. They they are not. Uh, they are not doing nearly as good a job as they could or should, which may sound like failure. But <laughs> failure <laughs> no, no. There's a difference between we were asked to do this and told to do this, and then we're not achieving that, <clears throat> versus we were not set up, directed, and funded to do what we're now being asked to do. Sure. Those are two different types sure. of failure. Sure. And I, you know. I, 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 I don't want to necessarily throw them completely on the, under the bus. Right. Well, well, just thinking out loud here, I mean, we fill out FinTrack forms all the time. And it's, I think we, we're probably fairly typical in that, you know, you get a bank draft for a one-bedroom condo deposit from, you know, Jane who works at Sony. But we don't know. that That's the extent of our knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very... The form almost seems uh, useless to me. Have you, have you ever ticked off the box suspicious? suspicious? Yeah, yeah, no, never. Right. But it, ne- but never has. I mean, we're not. Have, have don't you know the you, people uh, that well? Right. Uh, so, so you know, I think part of the the issues that relates to the real estate industry is there's this sort of notion of know your customer uh-huh. that gets applied to the financial industry, and it's not unreasonable to apply that to the real estate industry as well. Right. And again, you know, what, what you want is something that's then uniform. So everybody's playing by the same rules. And then you want it aligned with, you know, licensing. So those folks who aren't playing by the, the same rules, you know, have, you know, professional consequences for, for not doing that. Right. I think you, you don't want a system where the people who are playing by the rules get shafted. Sure. And the people aren't don't and they don't face any consequence. Right. So if you're going to have things that are 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 hopefully not too onerous, but, but have requirements, you want to make sure that everybody is dealing with them. And I, I think our objective in, in sort of making recommendations was very much that way. And I think the fact that the real estate industry has not sort of been yelling and screaming about what we recommended, I think, 
in my mind, speaks to the fact that, yeah, I mean, no one wants to have to do more stuff or have more obligations, but you, you, you want at least the obligations to, to, to be sensitive to your context. And I think that was certainly one of our objectives in making recommendations to say, hey, you know, make sure that your education, your reporting requirements, what you're expecting, what you're demanding of people both reflects the nature of the industry and how the business works. And then make sure that it's tied to the you know, accreditation and licensing requirements so everybody is, is subject to it. So I don't need to prosecute, you know, prosecuting somebody criminally for not filling out their STR. That's never going to happen. On the other hand, if we discover, you know, like, boy, there are, you know, there is the, the, these, you know, examples of what turn out to be money laundering and these brokers never, you know, filed anything. Well, let, you know, you can bring them before a council and say, well, you know, what part of suspicious did you miss? Yeah. Right. Because it's not like saying no. Uh, unlike the lawyers, it's not like you don't have to turn away the business. You just have to indicate, hey, this is suspicious. And, and again, you know, training that, that is appropriate and reasonable as part of your normal, you know, you guys all have to do normal accreditation and, and, and retraining. You know, I have a lecture, you know, given by somebody in the industry, not given by somebody who, well, I just came from talking to, you know, the bank risk officer, you know, because that's just like a different language and a different way of engaging in things. Right. And, I, and I think that was certainly our objective. And, I, you know, again, I, 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 you know, my sense is both given the reaction and also given the, the statement uh, that uh, a number of, you know, mo- most players in the real estate industry, not UDI, but most players in the industry came out with an advance of a report was actually very, very consistent with what we were recommending. And I, and I, and I think that speaks to a, a, you know, a desire to, you know, keep it clean because, you know, most folks are like, <laughs> I want to sell stuff to, to people who are like making, making the life here happen. Yeah, right. right. Maybe going back a little bit um, to the to the estimates of how much dirty money is is in the system or right. is, is uh, entered in through real estate into the VC economy. It, can we talk a little bit? It's a wide range. Can we yeah. talk a little bit about those estimates and, sure. and kind of where do you, you want to talk? That? Yeah. So, I mean, the, what you want to do is say there, there are two pieces to that, right? One is the number of the total amount of money laundering, which was estimated for 2018, 7.5 million, correct or incorrect. And then given that number, how do you flow through it to real estate? So those are, sort of, those are two, di- two very different things. So I kind of need to know, do you want to do the first one or the second one? Um, or both? Maybe you know? both. Yeah. But can we start with the first one maybe? Yeah. So sense. again, that's right. So, so this is, uh, you know, Professor Brigitte Unger's work. Um, and, you know, what she's doing is she's saying, okay, well, we've got – through the UN, we have this degree of crime reporting across the world in different countries. And then what we did in Canada is we said, well, let's, you know, we did sort of the Quebec wet, wet dream. And we pretended that, that these, you know, six regions, Quebec being its own region, uh, became independent countries. So we treated them from a data perspective like independent. So BC was its own, Alberta was its own, we had Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba as their own, Quebec, Ontario, and then Atlantic provinces. And we punted on the, the territories, no disrespect. <laughs> Sure. Um, <laughs> but they're just because they're so small in population sense, right? And and and, it, and the data becomes a little more challenging for the territories. So so now you're going to treat these these provinces slash regions as separate countries, and then you're so you're taking uh, crime statistics in terms of incidents. Um, then you're taking um, work that traces back to work by uh, John Walker in Australia, where he was estimating for a crime, you know, what percentage of the revenues from that. The monies from that crime, you know, sort of flowed out into the sort of 
into the into the into the economy, right? As opposed to you know some crimes, you need a lot of money to like. Well, I have to buy safe cracking tools, right? So the net revenues are low, right? So well, you know, the balance to, sheet. No, well, no, no. Think about crime <laughs> yeah. as a business, and then you have the costs yeah. of crimes. We're sort of you know, we're sort of looking at the the the, the net proceeds, um, <clears throat> and I believe he had numbers out of Australia, sort of by crime, sort of how much came out. So that's kind of the base, and that gets adjusted. So you've got different crime rates around the world, um, but the amount of money that flows out then gets sort of a, a adjusted by GDP and inflation and those kinds of things. So now you have sort of an, you know, so, so therefore, you know, uh, tax fraud in, um, and no offense to any country here, tax fraud in Mali, because the GDP per capita is much lower, has less sort of available illegal funds than tax fraud in Sweden where the tax rates are 80%, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's generating a bunch of money that's now sitting in each country, right? And so the next stage is thinking about that flowing from one country to another. And the model does not trace how it gets from A to B, so it's not tracing the 13 countries or steps that it flows through. It's just saying, okay, if you got this money, where is it going to eventually pool? Um, and that... Um, essentially looks at financial flows um, as sort of uh, as as the indicator and then sort of estimates the importance of uh, source country GDP and country GDP and what's known as sort of the attractiveness. So if you think about this, you know, money is more likely to uh, let me pick a colonial place. more money is more likely to flow from, say, the Cameroons right, to France, then the Cameroons to Australia um, because of uh, cultural links and these kinds of things. So the, so the attract, and it's more likely to flow to Australia um, than um, to, in, in terms of its final uh, resting place, than Paraguay because Australia has a, a nicer system for hiding things. It's sort of looser and it's got a well-developed financial system. So essentially, criminals want to put want their money to eventually sort of sit in rest someplace where it's going to be uh, most safe and most hidden, mm-hmm. and that's go- tends to be countries with more developed uh, financial systems, but also la- laxer regulation. Is is that so? One of those of the two makes sense to me that that there's certain countries that are safe havens and their currencies are right. kind of stable and and all those right. things like that. And Canada seems like a very good example of that. But that it's laxer than a place like like the it's easier to well, it's laxer than the Netherlands. So the the variance on the laxer, right? You know, it's 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 tighter than St Kitts and Nevis. Yeah, right. But then St Kitts and Nevis is, is a place you flow the money through, not a place it ends up sitting. Right, right, right. So that's we got to differentiate. Like so when you think of some of these Caribbean uh, nations that that that. Um, a lot of money flows through those. They don't. The, the money doesn't, doesn't stay, stay there. there. It doesn't yeah. stick there. The money's sticking someplace. But, good. And 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 look, as a, as 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 someone laundering money, you got two aspects. One of it's going to end up in the hands of people where they are. The other part of it's going to hand up, end up in places where you want it to invest and stay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, in general, investing and staying is better in places like places where there's a lot of legal protection for your money, but not a lot of questions being asked. Right. But I guess that that's the surprising part, I think, for probably a lot of people listening is that Canada, Australia, the United States are places where it's actually quite easy to launder money, right? Like, well, I mean, the, the quite easy by what standards? So the, the quite easy compared to certain other industrialized countries, right? Um, 
a lot harder than you know certain you know places Panama. In, than, than than Panama. But then you don't actually want your money staying in Panama. Right. You don't mind passing it through Panama. Right. But you know, like money launderers, like criminals are not dumb. Particularly, particularly if you think about where the the large amounts of money are with like. The, the high end, right? The lar- We're not talking – fundamentally, this is not the sort of gangbanger, right, on the streets that we're talking about with the really big money, right? It's – it's it, you know, and, and those people have lots of money and diversified portfolios and, you know, sure. it, and, you know, they're not, they're not stupid. And it's, the money doesn't all end up in real estate and flashy cars, right? You know? Um, really, really, you know, rich criminals have, you know, have money in venture capital funds and they have it in the stock market. They have diversified portfolios, right? right? And so you want that diversified, you don't want the diversified portfolio in China where the government on a whim can decide to seize it as opposed to a place where even if you do get caught, all of a sudden there's a, a, a legal process where you may be able to fight it and these kinds of things, right? So, you know that's kind of it, it's it's a classic trade off of a of an open liberal society right which is it, it makes it better for all the rest of us it also makes it better for the for for the criminals to have a a, a non capricious you know legal system mm-hmm. so you know i so i so i think it's 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 sort of having that mindset uh, uh, around it uh, i think that that's relevant so this makes me think of, you know, and we bring it up all the time, this New Yorker article from, say, 2015, where, where they talked about Vancouver being so attractive from a real estate perspective globally uh, because of social and political stability and, and all these other reasons that make it attractive to the global wealthy. And it strikes me as uh, that's what makes it so attractive to money launders. Yeah, money launders don't put their money in a stanky place, right? <laughs> they, they, you know. And, and and if you're a money launderer and you want to visit your real estate investment and stay in it, like again, like, well, gee, I've got, you know, Guatemala City uh, or I've got <laughs> Vancouver. Gee, I'll go to Vancouver. I've been to Guatemala City. Vancouver's nicer. That's right. So in no disrespect to, yeah. to, to Guatemala. None. But so, um, you know, all the things that make an area attractive are also going to make it attractive to money that's dirty sourced because a lot of that is – um, either those are good places to invest, um, or there's the part of well, my investments are things I also want to go and enjoy, and it may also be where I have business. I mean, you know, drug business is a really big piece of of uh, of BC. Um, you know, part of the, when you, you know our reports got a lot of pushback from certain provinces. Um, but part of what drives everything is you know how much drug crime. And uh, how much ta- how much drug crime, fraud, and tax crime do you have? And the places that have more of that are starting with a, a larger base of dirty money. And guess what? Alberta has a whole bunch of drug crime because they got a whole bunch of young people called construction workers with a bunch of money. At least not now, but but in 2015 when we're doing this. Right. So is it surprising then that there's going to be a whole bunch of money floating around because of that? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it also speaks to something that we addressed in the appendix of our report. So in the appendix of the, the report, one of the, we have like 12 appendices, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> put everything that you don't want people to actually see, but you want to make sure you had in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
one of the things that we, we do in the appendices is, is we go through a variety of indicators that people often associate with possibly being associated with, with money laundering and show how their incidence varies across different areas within the province and across different sort of price levels. But for each one of them, we also point out that every single one of them or even the combination of them can be a, a, a part of a legitimate business or um, tax structuring strategy. Right, that there's you know everything every aspect of those is it can can be legitimate, and I think what that highlights is the the aspect about money laundering that makes it challenging from an enforcement standpoint is going to be that that it is wrapped in all the kinds of things uh, that are legitimate and all the types of legitimate activities. Right, right, and so. You know what we're you know what we did not recommend that you know people suspected of money laundering be you know tied up and 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 tortured to, to confess right. What what we essentially recommend is helping investigators be able to connect the dots between things that are suspicious, right? So creating ways in which communication flows between different entities, particularly provincial and federal. Um, Approaching data in a way that makes it more readily shared um, between different entities that have to investigate. So that's sort of creating the the connecting the dots and then creating more dots, right? Creating more situations where people have an obligation to report things that are suspicious or know your client or re- report things. So you have more dots that are then connected because. At the end of the day, yeah, we're not going to get rid of money laundering. Yeah, right. That's that's not like 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 sure. You know, we we estimate right based on 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 sort of uh, uh, you know taking estimated numbers and then applying a whole bunch of assumptions. We get an estimate that housing prices are in you know overall are about five percent higher than they would be otherwise if you got rid of money laundering. Right, but you're not going to get rid of all of money laundering. Right. Right. On the other hand, making it more challenging here uh, means that either one, it goes somewhere else. That's their problem. Um, or two, it essentially is the same as reducing the returns to crime. Right. Because now if I have to work harder and spend more money to launder the money, you know, my net profits are lower, and so it's 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 essentially making it more challenging. Like no one has a notion, an idea, oh yeah, now we're going to get rid of it. Right. But 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 the reverse of sure come on down, right? Doesn't strike me as the right way to run the right. society. Yeah, better enforcement leads to better money launders, but it's probably more expensive for yeah, them. Yeah. That's right. You know, it's like to take the two extremes, if no one's doing anything, then it's really easy and cheap, right? right. And if people are making, well, I've got to launder it through more things cuz you know, every step of the way you're paying a fee. Yeah. Right. Every time you transfer from one bank to another, there's a fee. Every time you have to take a different lawyer to set up stuff, there's a fee. So the more steps or the more illegal the step, the higher the fee. Right. 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 So, so, so think about it that way. So, so one question I have here is, is that, um, you know, the, all the stuff about money laundering right now, and now there's going to be an inquiry. Right. Um, you know, it's a huge bombshell. The thing that uh, struck me is that, there's more it, it seems like it's a bigger problem actually in places like Manitoba or Alberta than it is in BC. Is that am I mis so, interpreting so, that? So what I would say is that the way we estimate money laundering, because it puts so much weight on the, the sort of the the generation of the money, and then the money is less likely to flow out of a sort of good stable place. We probably overestimate sort of how much sticks in the prairies. 
Um, but when you look at the prairies and you look at Alberta, you've got very high rates of crime, particularly drug crime. Um, and you have relatively high GDP per capita. Remember, GDP per capita in, in BC is relatively low uh, compared to GDP per capita in some of, in some of these in, in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And so that ends up sort of on a per capita basis, they're sort of being more there. I suspect that we probably overestimate that because the way the, 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 the fund flow stuff, you know, the model's set up to do international stuff. And then we applied it to Canadian regions and some of the ways financial flows are monitored. We don't have any suspicious transaction data between sort of flows between provinces and things. So we're probably getting a little more stickiness in the stuff internally within Canada than is likely the case. So like, if you were to ask me also, um, it depends on, like if we we believe that there's a lot of flows from China to here, China does not report high levels of crime. So therefore, the money leveling, uh, laundering potential in China is lower than I think it actually is, mm -hmm. right? And so therefore, we're not getting as much flow from China as we in the model as we probably are. But that's you know the problem with doing doing a model from first principles with available data, you make a lot of you know, a lot of assumptions. And then so you know our our point is to people is don't take these numbers as this is this is what it is. Take it as an indication that, you know what, there's a bunch of it out there and it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a problem in BC. So the lesson from, from the other provinces is not that they're worse or better. It's, you know what, this is a problem everywhere. And everyone should take the steps, you know, even if it's as, if it's as simple as, you know, the beneficial ownership registry, right? You know, that's, you know... Transparency International, all the folks who, who deal with white-collar crime and corruption and, and money laundering, all say the single best thing that you can do is a transparent ownership uh, registry. It's not that the criminals are going to go, oh, my God, I'm facing a stiff fine in BC if I don't put my name down. So, of course, they're going to put down somebody else. But then there's the the the, the, newspa the intrepid newspaper re reporter in Phil in the Country who's like, wait a minute, you know, why does the sister – of the finance minister have 12 properties, each worth $5 million in, in BC, right? They're able to go in and see that easily. Mm -hmm. Not that they have to set up a BC online account and one by one ask for a title, right? Right. You know, so, so, so again, that's what I mean by helping the, the dots be connected. Right. One thing that strikes me is it sounds like if I understand correctly, because there's so many assumptions, it's kind of a, uh, gut work like probably even though it, the the model suggests Alberta or the the prairies has a higher level of money laundering it's actually probably higher in BC is that am I understanding that right so so I would so my sense of where the error and the assumptions lie and and the problems in the underlying data are such that I think we underestimate BC, we probably underestimate Quebec and Ontario, and we'd probably overestimate um, the prairies. But again, you don't want to be in the business where you just start making up assumptions because sure. you think the numbers are wrong. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, from a, from, from a methodological standpoint, it is better to make assumptions that you know are likely to be inaccurate, but the process is very clear so you know where things happen. Then to start saying, well, that number's wrong, so let me tweak that one. And th that one's, you know, y y you may want to do that internally in your own brain, but you don't want to do that at a, at a report. What you want to do in a report is sort of lay out 
sort of what the assumptions are, what the framework is, so we all know what the weaknesses and the strengths are, right? And the, the strength here is, is, is there is a framework that is based on data. Um, and yes, that framework has lots of assumptions, and there are, there are weaknesses in the data that, are, 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 that vary by country and location. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, if a, if a friend of Vladimir Putin, right, uses the legal system in, 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 in Russia to seize your company, and then takes the, that money and invests it in a villa in London, because that wasn't a crime in Russia. Uh, yeah. That do, that doesn't count here, right. right? Right. So, but you know, the, the alternative of, was us to say, you know, we, we thought about this, right? Was okay. Well, there are these estimates of of the scale of corruption around the world, right? How do I allocate that by country, right? And I sort of looked. I started looking into that and estimating it. And you, you know, every everything that solves one problem pops up another problem. Right. So I, you know, I'm much more comfortable saying, look, this is the estimate. There are strengths and weaknesses of the estimate. Don't take this as, well, we rank here and somebody else ranks there. Right. Right. Take this as, hey, this is a big problem. Right. Or, you know, or, um, and, and needs to be paid attention to. And even if you, you say where, where, you know, BC ranks, you know, we're, you know, even in this model, the percentage of, of money laundering is a percentage of GDP right, is higher in BC than it is on the Canadian average. Right. Right. So uh, again, though, I think that, that that's, primar- that's primarily driven by the fact that we have uh, more reported crime of the crimes that generate money than, uh, than basically than Ontario and Quebec do. So one question in this kind of a, a broader, uh, take a step back from, I guess, the work on, on money laundering, it's, it's been a, a problem globally for a long time. Right? Why now? Why has it suddenly become a big issue in BC right now? I think you have a, you have a part of it that's driven by things that are going on in in the drug crime sphere with fentanyl and the opioid crisis, where 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 it's not just you know it's not smuggling marijuana to the states; it's people dying on the streets. And so, wait a minute, what's happening with this money? So, I think you have a concern from that side, but it happens to intersect the housing affordability side where, you know, we know there's a bunch of money flowing in, right? And and from from legitimate and illegitimate sources. And the 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 challenge here of if I'm living and I'm working here, right, housing is hard. Right? And if housing is hard for me, yet there's this empty fifteen million dollar villa with the three Lamborghinis parked in front of it, right? Um, that just doesn't seem right. Um, to people, and I think sort of that's obviously the part of it. And, and we've been doing the sort of almost the whack. I don't know if it's whack a mole because I'm not sure they're popping up anywhere else. So maybe it's not whack a mole. <laughs> but but there's the oh let's blame this and we yeah. deal with that. Oh the problem didn't go away, so it must be something else. And so there is an aspect to this on the housing affordability side of trying to look for things to blame. Now, part of that is because we don't want to blame ourselves. It's a whole lot easier. Let's pick the other people to blame. So first it was, you know, China, first it was investors, i.e. Chinese investors, right? Well, we still have the problem even though we're kind of addressing that. So now it must be money launders, right? And it's not that they aren't part of the problem, but I think also politically it's easy. It's always easier to do them than say, okay, what, are, what about us here, 
right? Because there are a whole bunch of people here who've made a whole bunch of money off of real estate, speculating and flipping and holding units. Sure. But we haven't, we've been a little more reluctant. You know, it's like, oh my God, you're charging the same vacancy tax on a Canadian as a foreigner. Well, you know, yeah. the house is vacant. Right, the the effect on the housing market it's the same if it's owned right. by the person who's living next door to it, or you know a penguin in Antarctica. Right, the, the real estate market effect is 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 the the, the same. Do you, do you think um, you know it's kind of a, a master stroke by the NDP here because this strikes me as as something that um, just crushes the liberals if people get behind it. Um, do you, do you see that kind of politics, or am I being too cynical uh, in this? So I'm going to to nicely sidestep and evade this question by saying my expertise is not in yep. politics. Sure, sure. <laughs> Nor is mine. I should make that clear. Uh, we were not uh, mandated with investigating the political ramifications nor liabilities. Um, but, but, you know – you had a previous government that the problem grew under, and now you have a different government. Right. And and clearly there's, there's a dynamics uh, there. Um, but when you look back on the previous government, I mean, I think they faced the, they faced the conundrum to some extent that is the, the, the NDP is, is skirting around now, which is solving housing affordability means falling house prices. And everyone was in favor of housing affordability being solved by having somebody else's house price Sure. Prices fall. Chrissy Clark used to tell this story. I mean, I'm, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, you know, right, which is she's in the cab. The cab driver says, you know, Madam Premier, you've got to do something about this housing affordability problem. It is causing huge difficulties. You know, my kids can't find a place to live. And she says, well, okay, well, well we, we can't take steps that will cause all housing prices, including yours, to fall in half. No, no, no. My house price can't go down, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, that that is obviously, uh, right. you know, and, and I don't mean to make it, it all light uh, of the, the, the effect on, on people, particularly who people who have bought near the peak and have seen, like, you know, it's one thing when all this equity I built up on the run-up comes down a little bit. Yeah. Comes down a little bit. Because it was all like, you know, you know, pennies from heaven that I haven't spent. It's another thing when... You know, the first time buyer who bought their condo in, you know, July 2018 with 5% down and now prices have fallen 7% and they basically have no equity, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you know, I, that's not something to be laughed at and, 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 and nor made, made sport of, but it is a challenge because you're not going to solve affordability problems without having prices come down. There's right. no magic pixie dust that doubles everybody's income that doesn't also affect housing prices. Well, well this goes to at least the last question that I have. We had um, a developer on earlier this year, Richard Whitstock, and, and one of the things he said stuck with me was, he said, I think that at all levels of government, you know, there's no more bullets in the gun. They've kind of fired everything at, at housing that they can. And this strikes me as something that he wasn't thinking about um, and can have is just another, there's been a pile on, right, uh, of taxes and everything else. Is this is there a danger here of of this having being kind of a final straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the larger economy uh, with with sales ratios at ten percent or eight percent or whatever they're at right now? So you know, I, I mean, BC has the problem that we have from as a sort of in a macroeconomic sense got addicted to real estate. 
right? That is not a healthy economy. Now, I know there are people who can do very well by this, and it's great for them individually, but the economy overall should not be a real estate economy because real estate is something you use to do something else, either to live in or to generate you know, uh, revenue for your business. It is not an end in itself, right? You know, like if, if, if we build a whole bunch of empty buildings and then tear them down and build them and tear them down again, we, we employ a whole bunch of construction workers, right? Well, that's great, but that's fundamentally wasted money, right? But the problem is going from an economy where, you know, you had 18 to 35%, depending on how you're measuring it, I'm more on the 18% side, uh, in, in, in real estate down to 10%, it's going to be a painful adjustment, right? Because there's a whole bunch of folks who have who who are part of that economy who their their incomes are contracting and they're spending less and all kinds of things. But if you want to get to the healthy place, you kind of have to get through that. And you know now how you do that and what's the right amount. That's 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 a separate. But you got fundamentally, we got to get from A to B. Because A, where we were, which is a real estate economy, is really not in anyone's long-term interest, right? And B is, but getting from A to B is, is, is difficult. And ideally, you'd like to do it smoothly and easily over time, you know, like this infinite series of soft landings. That's really hard to do. Yeah. Okay, so, sir, we have a, a, a quick segment called The Five Wire. Can you stick around for that? Yeah, it sounds good. I thought everything was always like three or something. Like <laughs> three segments and then, uh, yeah. So uh, question number one, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Uh, my favorite neighborhood is sort of the, the Main Street Corridor. Beautiful. Oh, hey. Favorite bar or restaurant? <sighs> That's hard to say. The place we go uh, most is uh, Sushi Bayuji. Uh, on Kingsway uh, near Nanaimo, it's very, very clean, pure, not fancy. It's not a fancy place, wow. but it's very much high. I'm making individual nigiri pieces as they come out, and it's incredible fish. Wow. Perfect. That's a, that's that's a, good, that's one. a good one. Uh, first place that you bring someone from out of town? My house, because we have to put the luggage down. <laughs> <laughs> that was a trick question. You got it. You nailed it. First guest. <laughs> no, you know, I think it's it's I, I think it's hard to say. I mean, my mom's visiting now, but she's obviously visited before. Um, probably the endowment lands because I need to walk the dog in the forest, and and I think that that's kind of something that's really unique is having sort of you know foresty area sort of embedded in the city. Um, I tend to avoid all the downtown touristy things, but but I do tell friends who are tourists to take the sea bus. Because you get a really neat perspective uh, on the city, on the mountains, uh, and it's and it's really inexpensive. Fa- fantastic answer. So, the next question is kind of more real estate related, but is there a piece of advice, and maybe not real estate related in this case? What is one piece of advice you would give your eighteen-year-old self? Okay, that's not a really good question to ask based on. <laughs> so let's make it a general real estate related yeah. answer rather than <laughs> Remember, I was I was a teenager in the 70s, right? So we just need to <laughs> There's all kinds of advice, right? Um so my advice to everyone who's always asking me about real estate is is that when you're buying real estate that you're going to live in, it's not a, don't think of it as an investment, think of it as a consumption good. And if you like living in it, right? And you don't lose your job, you can stay there as long as you need to. And if at the end of the day you made a lot of money off of it, then you know, say your your thank yous to God, you got blessed. But living in it is what you're actually doing in the real estate and remember the consumption part of it. Don't get sort of caught up in the investment side. 
Good answer. Good, good advice. And uh, last question, what is something that you've purchased for under $500 recently that has had a uh, impact on your life? Yeah, any pair of reading glasses that I've purchased. Because <laughs> otherwise, I can't, otherwise I can't read anything. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, how can people find out more about your research and what you do? Um, so they can, they, they can go to the Zotter School of Business, Strategy and Business Economics Division. I probably have a, a, web, uh, a web page that I, have, I haven't updated in three years <laughs> uh, with links to a bunch of really boring academic articles yeah. <laughs> that aren't nearly as interesting as any of these other topics. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Right, well, well, thanks again so much for your time. That was a fascinating conversation. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Sir Somerville, professor at the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. Super interesting conversation that we had with Sir Matt. Um, really enjoyed having him over at the studio. Yeah. And on a side note, I think I delivered the worst cup of coffee he's had in a long time. You know what? <laughs> in your defense, Sir is one of the, the the larger connoisseurs of coffee that I think I've ever met. That guy yeah. knows his coffee. He knows his coffee. He's lived all over the world, and he's he describes himself as having lived in some of the snobbier areas in the world with uh, fine coffee. That's right. Um, so, so, so my Folgers you, didn't work When out. you delivered... Well, no, even... I mean, you had... Starbucks, had Starbucks. Starbucks Pike Place. That's, had, uh, no, it was Starbucks Verona. Oh, it was a Verona. Um, okay, a Verona. I see now. That suggests my palate's not up to speed because I thought and, it was Pike. Well, yeah. I've got a $35 coffee maker. I've got Starbucks Verona. I only have almond milk and I and we don't well, carry the, sugar the, in the house. The, the, best, the best was Sir said... What kind of coffee? Because I usually like it black. And when you said what it was, you said, no, nah, I'll take cream and sugar in that. To which you replied, do you like almond milk? And he basically threw the cup of coffee at you. <laughs> that pretty much, that, uh, yeah, that was immediately, that. I think that was the turning point when Sir lost respect for us, <laughs> was the almond milk comment. Yeah. But anyway, great conversation with Sir. Uh, fascinating conversation. And uh, what else do we got today, Adam? We have Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. For all your real estate needs, head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Yeah, that's where you get tips and tricks, updated news feed. We got the Live Wire. That's our weekly newsletter with Deal of the Month. We got deals heading out almost every week right now on assignments. We also got private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information at your fingertips. It's free, it's easy to use, and it's the best research tool out there. Why not? Why not? Why Why not? not if you're looking to buy, if you're looking to sell? This is your finger on the pulse of the market no questions asked sure sign up at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com do you you think do you think interface express might take that on as their marketing why not (laughs) pcs why not hey we're doing god's work over here (laughs) so why not for private client services over at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com or why not give me a call to discuss or anything else real estate related or otherwise 778 847-2854 847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com we also have that money laundering line in info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com that means he'll do your laundry for money <laughs> <laughs> have a good week guys take care two thousand faces for radio subscribe today we
Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.